I don't know how I'm supposed to follow that one. Uh, if you have your Bibles, open up with me to the book of Hebrews. If you don't have a Bible, please open up to uh, the Black Pew Bible in front of you. I think the book of Hebrews begins on page 1001. I, I, uh, I read a lot, and I'm kind of the one-and-done guy with books, typically. I, I like to read a book, get what I can out of it, and move on. The author of Ecclesiastes says that of the reading of books, there is no end, and uh, it just seems like there are so many good books out there. My time is so limited. Uh, there's probably not a good reason to go back and reread a book. Having said that, there are certain books that do reward repeat reading. And these are typically the best books. You know, if you think about, uh, you know, the Twilight novels, there's no real reason to go back and read through those for a second time. Actually, I would say there's probably no real reason to go and read through them the first time, but I don't want to step on any toes, men or women, you know. But uh, you read Twilight once and you pretty much got everything that you're going to get out of it. On a Karenina, on the other hand, is a book that that very much rewards repeat reading as you explore and plumb the depths of the human soul through the writings that only Tolstoy can produce. The same thing is true of movies, you know. Uh, I think we can all agree that the greatest, greatest uh, comedy of all time is Napoleon Dynamite. Amen? Uh, I said, uh, amen. Amen, by the way, it, it's like we agree, so... No? Okay. But uh, as great as it is, you know, you can really watch Napoleon Dynamite once and get everything that you need out of it. When you rewatch it again, you're just doing it to relive the inside jokes, you know, can I get some of those tots, that kind of thing. You're not rewatching it to get more out of it. There's not a lot of depth there, okay? But a movie like There Will Be Blood or Christopher Nolan's masterpiece Inception, you have to watch it a couple times in order to really get everything that the filmmaker has for you in that movie. And movies like this and books like this, I think one of the ways that they function is you kind of have to understand the whole before you can understand some of the parts. You have to see how everything fits together, the main point that the author is trying to convey before you can really understand what's happening in this scene or that scene or this chapter or that chapter. And I think the same thing is true of the book of Hebrews. So many people are so confused about the book of Hebrews because they don't really understand what the book is about in its entirety. And I think you have to understand the book in its entirety in order to understand its parts. This is especially true of the warning passages. So much ink has been spilled about Hebrews 6 and Hebrews 10 and Hebrews 12. Can we or can we not lose our salvation? Well, I think rather than having a big debate about Arminianism versus Calvinism, although I do think one is right and one is wrong, I think it's probably just better to understand what the book of Hebrews is about and interpret those warning passages in light of the book of Hebrews as a whole. So this morning, that's what we're going to do. We're going to zoom our lens all the way out. We just got through the book of Amos, where we walked very slowly through the book, and then we took some big chunks at the end. This morning, we're just going to do a big overview of the book of Hebrews to try to understand in a less detailed, but in a more comprehensive way. So what that means is that our guest this morning 
you're going to hear a sermon that probably feels a little bit more like a lecture than a sermon, which is fine, but I just want you to know that's, that's not typically how we do things, but this is us beginning the, beginning the book of Hebrews, and, and so we're beginning it with an overview, and part of that is we have to, we have to, have to talk about things like who wrote the book, when, when was it written, why were they writing, what are the, some of the main themes of the book. Uh, if, you, if you were in our Sunday school class on hermeneutics, you'll remember that, that the main thing that, that we have to do when we approach a book of the Bible to, to understand it is to, to ask ourselves these sets of questions. Who wrote it? When did, when did they write it? Who wrote it to? What were they writing about? So on and so forth. And so as we prepare to enter into uh, six weeks together in the book, in the book of Hebrews, uh, we need to ask those questions this morning. So if, if you walk on like, man, that, that felt more like a seminary lecture than a sermon, Maybe, but it's, that's not typical, okay? So, so having said all that, let me go ahead and pray, and then we will dive in. Father, what we need, need most this morning is to hear from you. We need it more than, than anything else in the world, God. So we, we pray that you would speak to us. Amen. All right, let's dive right in. Note takers, uh, we're going to be talking, talking about the date, the, the date of the book of Hebrews. It's a little difficult to know when the book of he- Hebrews was written because the, the author didn't timestamp it, you know? When he was writing it, I don't think he understood himself to be writing something that was going to be recorded in the canon of Scripture for all of posterity and human history. So no timestamp. But I do think we have a, a, a couple, of, couple of clues about when it was written, and I think we can come to a roundabout idea. So you should know, first, first of all, a lot of people, when they're talking about the date of the book of Hebrews, they like to talk about the fact that it's a book written in response to persecution, and so therefore think that it is later. They think that it is later written in the first century. Uh, I'm not so sure about that because there are a number of different kinds of persecution that are taking place in the New Testament times. So you have Roman persecution. You think about Nero in AD 64. You know, after uh, he set the city of Rome on fire, he blamed the Christians. The first persecution broke out from that. But you also had indigenous persecution from the local Roman population that was alive and well pretty much from the very beginnings of the life of the church. And you also have Jewish persecution. You remember Paul used to be Saul, and Saul was the man, the man who went around trying to kill Christians, and, and that didn't happen way, way, way later, several decades. I mean, it was happened almost immediately after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. So you see a number of different kinds of persecution at play, and so I, I don't think persecution actually bears that much on the dating of the book. Um, but uh, there is something from the text that I think clues us. We're going to look at the text later. But one of the things that we, we see in the book of Hebrews is that the author was a se- second-generation Christian. Okay, so what does that mean, a second-generation gen- Christian? Well, well, we talk about second-generation immigrants all the time, right? So we, uh, we say a family came to America from so-and-so, wherever they came from, and their children who were bo- born here after parents immigrated, they're second-generation. Okay, so the same thing is true for the author of Hebrews. He was not a first-generation Christian in that he did not walk and talk with Jesus. He wasn't there when all these events happened, including the, the big event to the death and resurrection in Jerusalem. But he says that he received what he knows from the eyewitness accounts of those who were there with, with, with Jesus. So what, what I think that means is that this is probably at least a decade or two after 
the events of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. I think that would put us somewhere around the 40s or 50s A.D. Um, and then finally, I think it has to be sometime before 70 A.D. The reason why is because something significant happened in 70 A.D. That's when the Romans came in and they destroyed the Jewish temple. Okay? Now, when you read the book of Hebrews, you're going to see a theme. One of the main themes that you're going to see is the author is trying to persuade these Jewish Christians to not give up on Jesus and go back to temple worship in Judaism. And he does so in such a way, he talks to the temple as if it's still very much alive and well, as if it's still standing, as if an army, a horde of Roman soldiers has not come in and completely wiped it out. So it seems likely the temple is still standing, which means... Uh, at the time of this writing, which means the writing had to take place before 70 A.D. So I think we can reasonably say that it was written sometime between 40 A.D. and 70 A.D. All right, now that's probably the most technical and most brutal. So if you guys are like, listen, man, I came here to get the word, not, not to like have a technical lecture. That was probably the most technical part. Let's power through. On next to authorship. We always have to ask when we come to the Bible, who wrote it? Now, if you'll notice, at the very beginning of the book of Hebrews, we know it doesn't tell us, right? There's no, no introductory formula. You'll remember that uh, in epistolary literature or in, in letters written in the ancient world, there was always, always a pattern to letters. So if you go back and you reread uh, Paul's letter, for example, there's, there's always a pattern. It's like an introduction, and then, then there's a thanksgiving, and then, then there's like stating the purpose for the writing, and then there's, there's the body writing, which, which unravels all that stuff that he introduced, and then there's like, like a doxology or a benediction, and then it's like a final greeting, like, hey, so-and-so says hi to so-and-so, Tammy says hi to Rick and Bubba, you know, bye. Uh, that's the Alabama uh, version of the Bible. <laughs> Who are those hunt guys that had the big beards? That, that's the Dynasty Study Bible version. Okay. And, and so these letters, they usually have an introduction at the very beginning that goes something, something like a letter from so-so to so-and-so in light of such-and-such. That, that's the standard formula. But we don't get that in the book, the book of Hebrews. You look at verse 1, it says, Long ago at many times and in many, many ways, God goes to our forefathers by prophets. I mean, he's just diving, diving right in. It kind of seems like when you're beginning to read this letter, it is, in fact, a letter. It feels more like somebody who, like, if I were to just start reading and skip a sermon introduction. So we're going to talk a little bit later about why it's probably not a letter. But anyways, the author does not state his name in the writing. Now, there are a number of different ideas about who wrote it. Some people think it was Paul. Many early church fathers thought that Paul wrote the book of Hebrews. And let me tell you, it would be a lot simpler if Paul did write it. Other people think that Barnabas wrote it. Still other people think that Apollos wrote it. Remember from, from our time in Corinthians who Apollos is? And other people think perhaps that it was penned by Luke. Now, I don't, I don't want to sleep with all the technical arguments about the authorship and who it could be. Uh, the, the main thing that leads most scholars to believe that it wasn't written by Paul is that it just doesn't, doesn't read like some of Paul's writings, okay? So, so if you've ever immersed yourself in uh, the writings of, of a particular author, you, you know what it's like to hear their voice in their writing, right? So if it, it has a certain fingerprint. You know, if you, if you read Charles Dickens, you know that he is going to spend 12 pages describing a butt, butt on a coat. 
right? That, that's Dickensian. That's what, what it, that's, you just know that that's him. If you've ever read Kafka, you know, know what it means. Somebody says it's Kafka-esque. These characters always find them in these impossible situations. If you've ever read Cormac McCarthy, you understand his lack of punctuation and you see it everywhere. If you've read Hemingway, whether you're reading Old Man, you know, the story about the old man and then in the big fitter, uh, the, the Spanish Civil War, it, it doesn't matter. You always are going to recognize his dark, heavy, punchy rhythm, right? So whether you're talking about Stephen King or Danielle Steele, every author has a unique voice. And when you read it, you can hear it. Hear it. And when you are reading something else, you can, you can hear that too. So I think that whether you're reading it in Greek or in, or in English, the best argument against Paul having written the book of Hebrews is that it just doesn't have his voice. Now, if that doesn't seem very interesting to you, I would just encourage you to spend a lot of time reading the New Testament. Spend a lot of time. Go, go and read three or four of Paul's letters and then come back, back and read the book of Hebrews and you can just see it doesn't have his voice. It doesn't feel the same. It doesn't, it doesn't sound the same. Now, to counter, counter this argument, some people will speculate that perhaps Paul wrote the original letter in Hebrew and if maybe he did that because this was to a bunch of, of Christians with a Jew background who were being persecuted. So he wrote the original letter in Hebrew, and then it was translated into Greek by Luke. That would be the pristine Greek, different sound of voice of the letter, as well as the in-depth knowledge of the Old Testament. But I think that that's wrong, and I'm going I'm to show you in a minute why. Um, let's, just, let's go to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 3. Hebrews chapter 2. Verse 3. So it says, How shall we escape if we neglect such, such a salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. So here, the author of Hebrews is talking about salvation, okay? And he's saying that this is a salvation or gospel message was first proclaimed by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. But then he says that we received it. Now, we, I don't know who we is here, but it's definitely the author of Hebrews and some, somebody else. Maybe we in this pocket. I don't know. But we, the author of Hebrews, says that he, he received the message, not from Jesus, but from those who received it directly from Jesus, so I think that this is probably the strongest argument against Paul being the author of Hebrews, and I'll tell you why. Number one, one uh, this is not how Paul talks about himself in relation to the, the gospel. Paul never, never talks about himself as someone who has received the gospel from, from those who with Jesus. As a matter of fact, Paul way out of his way to talk about himself as someone who, re who received the gospel of Jesus Christ directly from his Lord. In the book of Galatians, he's talking about, you know, the super apostles, that, which are in 2 Corinthians. He, he says, listen, I didn't receive my gospel from any man. And even if they did meet up with the disciples, they didn't add anything to what I said. They said, yeah, yeah here you go, Paul, and don't, don't forget the poor. And he was like, don't worry, I wasn't going to anyways. Right? You can read this. Just turn with me to Galatians chapter 1, verse 12. He says, for I did not receive it. And we'll go to verse 11 so we can know what we're talking about here. For I would have you, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me 
is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of, of Jesus Christ. So he's talking about his encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus, and he says, listen, I got the gospel directly from Jesus. I didn't get it from anybody else who used to roll with Jesus, who then came and told, told me about it later. So I think that, that because the book of Hebrews says, says that the author of Hebrews received from those who were present with Jesus, that it, that it just cannot be Paul. So, which leads us to, to ask this question, well, who wrote it? I don't, I don't know, you know? I mean, I just don't know, but, but the thing is, you don't have to know. You don't have to know who wrote it to recognize this as God's word. The early church recognized this as God's word because it had God's fingerprint all over it. And I think that as we study it, you're going to see it. You're going to feel the book of Hebrews doing its work in you. Whether or not it's Paul or Apollos, it will obviously verify itself to you. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, real quick. Let's know what the author says about the Word of God. For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, peering to the, vi- to the division of soul and of, of spirit, of joints and of, of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. God's Word works in us. It ju- judges us. It moves in us. And I think that as you study the book of Hebrews with me for the next several weeks, that you're going to feel the book of Hebrews do do that to you. We don't stand in judgment over God's word. God's word is going to judge us, the thoughts and the attitudes of our hearts. It will convict of sin and it will show us the glory of Jesus Christ. And if we have ears to hear and eyes to see, we will be sanctified by what we learn. Okay, next thing we have to talk about is the genre. The genre of literature of the book of Hebrews. So uh, just a little bit about genres. It's very important that you understand what genre of literature you're reading when you're studying the Bible, right? There's a very big, big difference between a refrigerator annual and a love letter, right? One is cold and technical. It's only concerned with details. It doesn't have any superfluous or f- uh, flowery language. Just, you, know, you connect the tube to the, I don't really know what I'm talking about. GEP will help me. You connect the thing to the other thing and put together and now you got cold air, okay? okay. A love letter, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's full of flourish. And, and those two things are different than other things. Those are different than a letter. It's different than a, 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 a grocery list. It's different than, in the Bible what we find is apocalyptic literature. It's different than wisdom literature. It's different than history, right? And if, and if you approach a history you're trying to read it as if it's a poem, you're not going to un- understand it. If you read a poem as if it's history, you're not going to understand it very well either. So it's important we understand what kind of li- literature the b- book of Hebrews is. Now, classically, it has been un- understood to be a letter or an epistle. I, I think it's probably better understood to be a homily, a sermon, right? And I'm going to give you a few reasons why. The first reason is the structure of book. Um, the, the author of Hebrews, you'll see this as we, we work through it, his audience through a cycle of teaching and exhortation. Te- teaching and exhortation. Teaching and exhortation. Over and over again. Uh, that feels like, feels like a sermon, right? So pretend that this isn't the introductory sermon to the book of Hebrews. It's not one of my normal sermons where we read the text 
and then, and then I teach you some theological truth from the text, I interpret the text, and then, and then, and then we try to apply the text to our lives, and I exhort you as your pastor in how to apply the truth of God's word to your life in specific ways. And I, and I may do this two, three, four, five, ten times in a sermon. I'll give you a theology, and then I'll tell you what it means for your life. That's what, that's what a sermon feels like, and that's what we have here in the book of Hebrews. It just feels like a sermon. You know, I have sermon compilations in my, in my life, you know, Charles Spurgeon and a bunch of other people, and you can go in there, in there and when you read it, it very, very much feels like a sermon. It doesn't feel like, like a letter. And I think that the same thing is true of the book of Hebrews. When you read the book of Hebrews, it doesn't feel like, like a letter. It feels like a pastor preaching a sermon. I know that's the second feel argument that I've made uh, so far in the morning sermon, but I, I do think it's true, and I, I do think, think it's uh, valid. Okay. Uh, the second reason is actually from, from the text itself. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 13, verse 22. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 22. <laughs> uh, it says, uh, and I don't know what version you're reading. My ESV version says, I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. Uh, the NIV and a couple of other translations say, uh, I have uh, given you a, a brief of exhortation. Either way, the point is clear. The author here, here thinks that 13 chapters is a brief word, <laughs> right? Yeah, it, it reminds me of weeks ago when I promised you guys that the sermon was going to be short. It went 50 minutes. So it's just apparently preachers just don't change 2,000 years. We all get shorter than it really is. So, but, but, but look there, it says, uh, a word of exhortation, a word of exhortation. This phrase, word of, word of exhortation, is probably synonymous with a, a sermon or homily. So to, to show you that, just from one place in the scriptures, turn with, turn with me to Acts 13. Keep one finger in Hebrews, flick on over to, to Acts 13, uh, starting in verse 14. So this is Paul and Barnabas, okay, and uh, they turn to Jerusalem. We'll start in verse 13 for context. Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga and Amphia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went and came to Antioch, Antioch, in Pisidia. And on this Sabbath, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the, from the law and the prophets, the, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brother, brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. Now, when it, when it says they sent a message to them, don't think that they, like, like they, they, like they were in the same building. They were, they were all there in the synagogue together. They sent a message, which means somebody probably just sent somebody out to the, to the back of the room to grab them and, and to pull them up, okay? Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement, and that word encouragement in the Greek is the same as exhortation, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, will say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hands, like a good preacher, he said, and then it launches into a sermon. Okay, this is a sermon that, that Paul preached in Acts chapter 13. So we, we see here that they're gathered together uh, in the, t- the temple, excuse me, not in the temple, uh, there in the, uh, what's the word, uh, in, the, in the synagogue, and, and um and they read the law and the prophets, which was customary, and all early Christians did. If you're wondering why, if you're a visitor and you're wondering why we read so much of the book of Luke this morning, uh, it's because we just understand that that's just what Christians do. Even when Paul writes, 
He says, be dedicated to the public reading of Scripture. So it's not just me and my preaching and my interpretation and application of the Scripture, but we also just let God's Word speak for itself. You see, this is the same thing here in, in Acts 13. So the Scriptures are read, and then, hey, do you guys want to preach for us? And then they stood up and preached. And this phrase is the same phrase that we see here at, at the end of the book of Hebrews, a brief word of encouragement or a brief word of exhortation. So having said that, I actually think that the book of Hebrews, the sermon that it was written down and it is passed around in the same way that letters often are. I hope that makes sense. Next, we have to think about the purpose of the book of Hebrews. The purpose of the book of Hebrews. Uh, the author of Hebrews covers a lot of ground in 13, 13 chapters. A, a lot. He talks about angels and Moses and the law, the patriarch, and the people of Israel and the old covenant, the priesthood, including some guy named Melchizedek, or, or is it Melchizedek, or is it Mil- we, You know, we're just saying something, we're, we're going to say evidently and go with it, right? There's this guy named Melchizedek, and we don't, we don't really know him. Then there's the covenants, there's the temple, the sacrificial, the Sabbath, the promised land, and more. All of that in his brief word of exhortation. The book of Hebrews is like a running commentary on how we should think about the old covenant in light of Jesus and the new covenant. The book of Hebrews quotes the Old Testament more times than any other book Bible. It's like every other line in the book of Hebrews is either an allusion to the Old Testament or it is a direct quotation from the Old Testament. So, this theology? Why is the author of Hebrews uh, taking so much pain to talk, to talk about this guy named Melchizedek, to talk about the Israelites wandering through the desert, to talk about the sacrificial system? Why does he feel like he has to dive so deep into all these things? Well, in order to understand that, you have to, uh, you have, you have to understand the background of the book. So turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 32. Hebrews 10, But recall the former days when after you enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you fully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourself had a better possession and an abiding one. So it seems like people in the book of Hebrews are experiencing persecution. Okay, it seems like there is suffering for the name of Jesus Christ that these Christians are experiencing. Now, what you need to know about these Christians is that the book of Hebrews gives us a number of different clues that they probably are all from Jewish background. Okay, okay. So, so what's happening here is that as persecution rises, as things start to heat up for these Jewish Christians, as they are suffering persecutions, people like Saul going around, beating down doors, dragging people out, stoning them to death right there, all, all, all these kinds of things, as they are enduring that, they are thinking, man, is this worth it? Is this real? Did Jesus really die from, did he really rise from the grave? Man, things good back in the temple. Things were nice in the synagogues back then, right? It was all so simple. It was all clear. As a Jew, I had protection from Roman persecution. 
I didn't have to deal with Jewish persecution. I didn't have to deal with Roman women persecution. Things were pretty good. Man, maybe, maybe I just need to go back to that. And so this author of Hebrews is probably a pastor. He writes this sermon, passed around in the form of a letter saying, listen, there is nothing back there for you. If you abandon Jesus and go back, there's nothing left for you. Why? Because Jesus has fulfilled all of it. Jesus is the thing that everything else in the new covenant, excuse me, in the old covenant was pointing towards. All the shadows, all the pictures, everything. Who Melchizedek? Well, regardless of how you answer that, you have to know that Jesus is final Melchizedek. What's the point of the sacrificial system? Well, regardless of how you answer that, you have to know that Jesus came as the final sacrifice. And so if you want to go back and try to offer sacrifices for your sins and temple from here on out, you need to know that there no longer remains a sacrifice because Jesus came and fulfilled the sacrificial system. If you want to go back and practice the Sabbath the way the Jews practice the Sabbath, you're willing to do that, but you should know that there no longer exists a Sabbath the way that Jews understood the Sabbath because Jesus came gave us our full and final Sabbath rest. You can go back to Moses' law and let Moses and the law be the th- things that govern your lives, but you, you should know that Jesus came as the greater Moses, and he fulfilled the law, and he died to pay the price for your transgressions against, against the law. So you can go back trying to have a relationship with God through those means, but those means are, are no longer available to you. And, and so the pastor says, you must endure. You must persevere. If you go back to Judaism, you will find nothing there for you because Christ has fulfilled all in all. I thought for a long time about how I could summarize the book of Hebrews in one sentence. You know, you know how I like to do, do like pocketized definitions, give us pithy little sayings that we can take with us forever and ever. Uh, and I thought, man, I would like, like to summarize Hebrews in one sentence. And after beating my head against the wall for an hour, I don't think I'd do it. But I think I got two sentences. And, and if you, and you use a semicolon, which I'm still not sure I know how to use entirely. But if you, you use a semicolon in place of a period, I think you could do one sentence like this. Jesus is God's final word of salvation. So don't give up on Jesus. Jesus is God's final word of salvation. So don't give up on Jesus. And we're going to explore this uh, one, one slash for the, the next five, maybe six, but I'm thinking five weeks together. Okay? Okay. Now I know what you're thinking. The entire book of Hebrews in five, five weeks? Yes, the an entire book of Hebrews in five weeks. Why are we doing, doing it in five weeks instead of like, you know, John Piper who did it in like, I think, 38 years. I've spent the first 38 years of his ministry Hebrews. Uh, we're doing it this way because of what I said in the beginning of the sermon. Sometimes you have to understand the whole in order to understand the parts. So what I want to do with our time in the book of Hebrews is to help us understand its entirety. I want every member of this church and any visitors who may be for that time, I want you all to walk away feeling like you're not afraid of the book of Hebrews. I want you to walk away feeling like, you know what, I may not be able to answer every question about everything that I see here in the text, but overall, I'll tell you, this is what the book of Hebrews is about. 
All right, we, we talk about the lenses that we use to study scripture. Sometimes we zoom all the way in and we'll just focus on one word or one phrase and we'll spin that out and plumb depths of it so that we can really understand. what Paul says that we're, we're dead in. Well, what does that, does that mean, dead sin? And we'll spend an hour looking at dead, dead in sin together to try to understand. That's all the way zoomed in. You know, Google Maps when you're trying to do your driveway, you know, in, 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 in. But sometimes... We have to zoom way out and get a broad, more all-encompassing view, right? Out from our driveway, way out from our neighborhood, out from our sea, out from our country. We have to see the whole world. So that's what we're going to kind of be trying to do with the book of Hebrews. Um, um, uh, if you're a note-taker, let me give you the brief outline that we're going to follow the next five weeks. First week, we're going to do chapters 1 and 2. Jesus is greater than the angels and the law. After that, we're going to do ch- chapters 3 and 4. Jesus is greater than Moses and the, the promised land. After that, we're going to do chapters 5 through 7. Jesus is greater than the priests and the priesthood. After that, we're going to do, to do 8 through 10. Jesus is greater than the sacrifices and the covenant. And I'm, I mean to say old, old, old. And then after that, we're going to do chapters 11 and 12. And we might throw in 13 as well. Uh, trusting in the promises. Trusting the promises. So finally, I want to close this uh, pseudo-sermon by a- asking what may not be an obvious question to everyone, everyone as we think about it together. Why do we need the, the book of Hebrews at all? Well, I think that there are a number, number of different answers to this question. The first answer is that theology is, is very important. Theology matters. What we believe, listen, everyone is a theologian, right? You don't, don't have to have a seminary. You don't, don't have to have a jacket with, you know, patches. You don't have to smoke, smoke a corn pipe and use a bunch of $2 words in order to be a theologian. When I say the word God to you, you have conception of God that enters into your brain. Now that, that, that conception is either in line with God as he has revealed himself in his word, either accurate, or it is a conception of God that you, you have fabricated out of thin air from your cultural experiences, from your understandings of the Bible, from the ways that you were trained. What I, mean, what I say is, is that everyone has a concept of God. Everyone is in some, some sense a theologian. The question is, are you a good theologian? Are you, are you a faithful theologian? Do you understand God as he, he actually is? And nothing could be more important than your, in your whole life than to actually understand God as he has re- revealed himself. Because what you believe influences how you live. You see that here in the book of Hebrews. He's trying to, to give you theology, and then he's trying to say, if, say, if this is true, then you need to do this, and he does it over and over again. The second reason why we need the book of Hebrews is because it teaches, it teaches so much about, about the Old Testament. The Old, Old Testament is so important. It's true, we are a new covenant people, so like when I see Bible, Bible reading plans, you know, this is the time of the year where everyone starts a new Bible reading plan, right? Everybody, everybody makes it to Leviticus and then quits February, right? Uh, but this is the time when we have our new Bible reading plans, and some Bible reading plans have you going to the New Testament twice, three times, every time that you go through the Old Testament. I think that's fine. I understand the reason why they do that. It's because we're a new, new covenant people. But you can't, you can't understand the new covenant unless you understand the old covenant. 
The new covenant flows out of the old covenant. The new covenant is built off of the old covenant. The new covenant is the fulfillment of all the promises of the old covenant. So if you don't understand your Old Testament, you're not going to understand the new Testament as you should. And the thing about Hebrews is it's like a one-stop for how you can understand the Old Testament in light of the New Testament. You want to know what's up with all these priests dripping you know, their thumb and then their big tin blood and freaking it all, all on the altar. You, you want to know with all these mixed facts. You want to know what's up with all these priests doing all these, all these weird things. The book of Hebrews is a one-stop shop to help you understand those in light of the death, burial, resurrection, of Jesus Christ. The next reason why we need the book of Hebrews is because I, I think it perhaps most powerfully, more po- powerfully than maybe any book of the Bible, and I, I might... I might be stating it too early, but I think it very strongly shows us the supremacy of Jesus, right? It gives us a vision of Jesus as Lord and Savior who is high and lifted up. Friends, there's nothing that we need more in these days than to have a vision for the supremacy, the superiority, the magnificence, the escalated position of Jesus Christ because we do not look at Jesus in this way. We see Jesus more of a man God. And the truth is he was both man and God. Our culture is teaching us to view Jesus as someone that we can write off, someone that we should be indifferent towards, someone whose name we can take in vain. But friends, Jesus is the king of the world. He's the king of the universe. He is the king of all things and the lord of all lords. And we make sure that our vision of him is accurate and the book of Hebrews will help, help us to do that. Finally, and this is probably most practically, uh, the reason why we need the book of Hebrews is because every single one of us is closer to falling away from Jesus than we think we probably are. The fact of the matter is that sin, I mean, Grant Sunday School class did such a good job uh, highlighting it this morning. It's not even sin, it's just everything is trying to pull us away, away from Jesus. Everything. You know, Satan will use murder and, and rape, and he'll use all, all these very dark and serious danger sins, but he'll also just, just use this on Twitter. Everything is trying to pull us away, away from Jesus. And although we may not be going back to the temple, we, we may just be going back to whatever else can give us life and was leading us to death and hell. And, hell. and as a Christian, if you've walked with, with Jesus long, if you know what I'm t- talking about, you should feel that. When, when I say, listen, listen, you are this close you know, the, the, the hymn, hymn I, we should sing it after this. I, I did it on the service well, but uh, uh, the hymn that says, that is prone to wander, Lord, I feel prone to leave my God, God above, right? Prone to leave the Lord I love, the one who loved me. When, when, if you've been a Christian for like a day, that may not make, make sense to you. What are you talking about? I remember, Jesus loves me. He saved me. I would never believe Jesus. If you've been a Christian for like a decade, you know, like, yes, let's sing, sing that song because I feel it in my bones, in the book of Hebrews, I think helps us be rooted in that reality. Um, and I think these, these last two go together. They help us to see the supremacy of Jesus, and they help us focus on uh, perseverance, because in order for us to persevere, we ha- have to see the supremacy of Jesus. Um, I think in order for us to make it to heaven, we need two things pretty consistently in our life. Right. You ever heard about people talking about motivation, how they say like they'll dangle a carrot, carrot in front of you? Right? right? Well, it's supposed to be like they're hanging a reward. Unless you're, unless you're a, rat, uh, a carrot, it's probably not much of a reward for you. But whatever that reward may, may, may be for you, right? We need that 
But we also need something being behind us, like a warning. And I think the book of Hebrews gives us both of the things. The book of Hebrews gives us warnings, something to fear, and it also gives us promises, something in the future for us to hope in. Now, uh, some people say that you should never use fear to try to get people, people to fall to Jesus. Right? We, we don't want to talk about fear. We only, only want to talk about good things, sweet things, the gifts of God, the promises of God. The only problem with that, that is just, that's not the way the Bible talks. That's not the way the book of Hebrews works. The book of Hebrews tries to get us to be afraid because hell is real and sin is alive and active. So do be afraid. Do be warned. And also focus on the promises of God and look, look forward to the sweet things that we have in Jesus forever and ever. Now, now if you're here this morning, and you found yourself wandering from the fold of God. Uh, I don't think you're here on accident. I think the Lord brought you here specifically to be encouraged, to be challenged, to remain faithful to Jesus. So I want to encourage you to come back next week, and the week after that, and the week after that, so you can learn exactly how God has designed you to follow him faithfully and not give up on him. Uh, on the back of your handouts, Chancellor, can you hand me my hand there? Thank you, buddy. Me, please, uh, to the back of your handouts. Last page, last page. You'll see there a gospel message. And I just don't want us to leave this morning without thinking about the gospel together. I know that an introductory sermon to a book feels more academic, and there's been not a good place to, to get in there and to, uh, to preach uh, the cross of Calvary. But I think, think what we need every single week is to be reminded of the gospel truth uh, that has saved us and in which we are, are still being saved. So uh, can, can, can you just stand and join with me as I read aloud, please, this gospel message? <clears throat> the gospel is a joyous declaration that God is redeeming the world through Christ and that he commands everyone everywhere to repent from sin and trust in Jesus Christ for salvation. Each of us has sinned against God, breaking his law and rebelling against his rule. And the penalty for our sin is death and hell. But because of his love, God sent his son, Jesus, to live for his people's sake, the perfect obedient life that God requires and to die on the cross in our place and for our sin. And on the third day, Christ rose from the grave and now reigns in heaven offering for forgiveness, righteousness, and resurrection and eternal blessedness in God's presence to everyone who repents of sin and solely in him for salvation. Let me, let me pray. Father, uh, we thank you, thank you so much for giving us the book of Hebrews. We pray that you would help us to be faithful stewards of your word. Help us to read it, uh, to, to understand it, and help us love it. Lord, help us to obey it. Help us to not be hearers only, but also doers of the word, showing that we really do belong to you. In your son's name we pray. Amen.